There's an enormous amount of frustration right now in the international system around the lack of follow through and the lack of financial support from the richest countries for the poorest. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On June 22nd and 23rd, dozens of presidents, prime ministers, finance ministers, and other high-level officials met in Paris for what was billed as the Summit for a New Global Financing Pact. Their goal was to rethink the, quote, global financial architecture in terms of how to support the developing world grow economies in a climate-compliant way. For many years now, less developed countries have rightly complained about lack of access to funding for sustainable development that donor countries routinely promise, but rarely deliver. This summit was intended to address those concerns and kickstart momentum toward new funding opportunities for sustainable development, including enacting reforms at the World Bank and International Monetary Fund. This meeting was a big moment for the sustainable development community, and joining me to explain what happened is Clemence Landers, a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. We kick off discussing why such a meeting was necessary in the first place, including a trifecta of crises that is driving economic distress in less developed countries. We then discuss the outcome of the meeting, and what it means for global development and climate change debates going forward. Financing for sustainable development is one of the key global challenges today, and this conversation gives you excellent background for understanding the diplomatic context in which these discussions and debates are taking place. Please be sure to visit globaldispatches.org. This is our new website page. Our 10 plus years of podcast content is all housed at globaldispatches.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter, which delivers you the latest analysis from around the world. And at globaldispatches.org, you can also get in touch with me. So do take a moment to check out the new website and sign up for updates. Thank you. Now here is my conversation with Clemence Landers of the Center for Global Development. Before we discuss what happened at the summit, can I have you explain the context in which a meeting like this was deemed to be necessary and a useful thing in the first place? What's the background to the summit? Well, the background to the summit is really the trifecta plethora of crises that with which the international community is confronted in the aftermath of the COVID-19 crisis. I would look at this in two buckets. You know, from one perspective, a lot of developing countries were hit really hard 
by the economic effects of the COVID crisis, hit very hard by interest rate normalization in advanced economies, hit very hard by Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. And all of this has created a real crisis of economic development in the poorest countries. Against this backdrop, we're also facing an enormous, fast-approaching climate crisis that has a potentially enormous price tag requiring an enormous amount of investments in mitigation, as well as investments in adaptation to help countries cope with climate-related disasters. But the second element is during the COVID-19 crisis, a lot of the weaknesses in our economic and financial system, especially weaknesses pertaining to the international financial institutions, were really put on display. A lot of criticism came to the fore about these institutions, especially the World Bank and some of the multilateral development banks, but also the IMF, not responding fast enough and not responding at scale to the COVID-19 crisis. And in particular, one of the elements that really came to the fore was that these international organizations in many ways failed with dealing with one of the first international global challenges, a synchronized global crisis like COVID, which really is very foreboding when you think about the fact that COVID in a lot of ways was a little bit of a dress rehearsal for a lot of the broader global climate change crisis that we're facing. So in a lot of ways, this Paris summit was convened as an, an attempt to really th rethink the international financial architecture. How can we have an international financial architecture that's more prepared for the next crisis that hits us, whether it's a pandemic, whether it's climate, but also how can the international financial architecture remain very engaged in the unfinished business of development and the unfinished business of poverty reduction. Prior to COVID, you know, a lot of the numbers were looking better. A lot of countries were looking better. But after COVID, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, most countries look like they're really coming out of the crisis worse off. So how do you increase the financing for these countries? How do you increase the financing for climate? And how do you build an international financial system that helps countries become more resilient? Can I drill down just a little bit on this idea that you just aired, that this trifecta of crises, the economic impact of COVID-19, interest rate normalization, and the knock-on effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the toll that those three things are taking, particularly in the developing world, just as the whole entire world is needing and requiring the developing world to invest more in climate issues. Is there like a country or an example you could cite where this is really like manifest these forces? I would almost take that question a step further and say most countries and most developing countries are exhibiting different aspects of let's let's call the, this trifecta of crises the polycrisis. So for instance, in the aftermath of COVID, a number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa are facing growing prospects of a debt crisis. So far, four, four countries have asked the international community for help with their debt burdens, Zambia, Ethiopia, Chad, and most recently Ghana. And a lot of the fact that these countries had growing debt burdens was linked to the fact that 
They borrowed quite a bit in the lead up to COVID during the 2010s, when these countries enjoyed quite a bit of access to capital markets, and when China was lending quite a bit to the continent. But in the aftermath of COVID, financing conditions really changed a lot for a lot of these countries. That meant that countries had a lot of difficulty finding new sources of financing to repay their debts and to roll over their debts. Zambia in particular has been really one of the countries where this has really come to the fore. And they had an enormous amount of debt to commercial creditors, and they had an enormous amount of debt to the Chinese, and have been in in a very protracted loan debt restructuring negotiation with the whole gamut of their creditors. So bilateral creditors like China, but also more standard Paris Club type creditors, France and Germany, as well as as their bondholders. And while you know a country is in the process of restructuring, they're really not able to access new sources of funding. So this puts a lot of their development on hold. And if a restructuring lasts maybe for six months, that's one thing. But for Zambia, they've been in these negotiations for almost well over two years. So that really creates a debt limbo for these countries. At the same time, Zambia has been doing a lot of investments in solar and really trying to scale up its use of renewable energy. It's also a big exporter of natural resources and, and raw materials. And with the price of copper changing, that has very much affected Zambia's export capacity. So what you really have is countries being hit by a lot of external headwinds that are really not within their domestic control. And so I think that's a really helpful summary of the driving impetus for holding a, a meeting like this Paris summit. What happened at the meeting? Could you give us a sense of who was there, why Macron decided to convene the meeting, and what were some of the key outcomes and key debates? It was two days worth of meetings. Macron decided to co-convene these meetings with Mia Motley, who's the president of Barbados. And one of the sort of global stars in climate action and a particularly effective communicator, I'd say, on the need for robust climate action in forums around the UN and elsewhere. It is kind of extraordinary how much international support Mia Motley has galvanized through what's called her Bridgetown agenda, which, as you said, is very much focused on climate finance but also focused on really profound reforms to the international financial architecture. And, but it's fascinating the role that Mia Motley has been playing in, in these international discussions because, you know, she is the president of Barbados, but it is, a, you know, a small country, a small island state. And she is, is in a lot of ways playing a very outsized role in these international discussions relative to, you know, the economic <laughs> force of, of Barbados. And I, and I think one of the reasons for that is I, the world really right now seems to be hungering for leadership on these issues, really hungering for voices and for ideas and for advocacy around a lot of these issues, which, you know, for people like me, I spend a lot of my time thinking about this, but for the most part, a lot of these issues seem to be falling a little bit by the wayside in terms of what's dominating the international agenda. And when you're representing a small island state like she is, you have this kind of moral force in these arguments to the extent that climate change is more of an existential crisis to small island states than it is to just about any other country on the planet. 
So there's that added element, I think, combined with her political acumen is something that I've been witnessing as a reporter over the last couple of years really come to fruition. Mia Motley has become a, a very powerful advocate for something called climate resilient debt clauses, which is a little bit of a mouthful. So I might call them pause clauses for the rest of these podcasts. But basically, in a nutshell, what they are is that they're built into debt contracts of a country. And so if a country's hit by a natural disaster, that government can stop paying its servicing its external debt for a year or two years. And that can really be a really strong, provide a lot of fiscal space for a government when they're dealing with a very severe national emergency. So think a hurricane. And basically what it allows the government to do is instead of spending its budget repaying its creditors for a year or two, it can use those fiscal resources to mount a response to the crisis. And that really provides basically immediate relief for the country. Now, this isn't a debt write-off. The country subsequently does have to repay its creditors, but it gives the country breathing room. Mm -hmm. And Barbados has innovated in this area. They now have pause clauses in the vast majority of their sovereign debt, including private sector debt, some of their multilateral development bank debt at the IDB. And Mia Motley has really been championing these as part of a solution to a less crisis-prone world, right? You don't want a country to being hit by a natural disaster to also subsequently be hit by a debt disaster. And in Paris, the World Bank announced that it would be putting similar types of clauses, providing these clauses an option in their loans, which for many was hailed as you know, an important victory. It's not a game-changing victory, but it is a very important victory especially for countries that are vulnerable, like Barbados, to very predictable natural disasters. Well, well, so that sounds like one concrete outcome of this summit. Are there other similar concrete outcomes that you could point to that you would highlight? I think that looking at the outcomes from the summit, a lot of this is, is very well-trodden territory. A lot of this summit was highlighting different processes that are underway in different arena. And this kind of links a little bit to some of the criticism that Macron has come under for the summit. A lot of the issues around MDB reform, which have featured very prominently, are also very much underway at the World Bank Board and within the G20 process. And there's a finance minister summit in the G20 coming up in a couple of weeks in July. And then there's the full leader summit in September. And then there's also the COP process. And the COP, which is the big climate convening, will be um, convened this year in, in the UAE. So in a lot of ways, you know, one of the things that comes out of these summits is sometimes you organize a summit around a specific deliverable. I mean, it really allows you to move the needle in a really big way on something. And sometimes summits are in search of deliverables. And when I look at a lot of the things that are hailed as deliverables here, a lot of these efforts were very much already in train. For instance, you know, Zambia, and it was very fortuitous timing, was able to announce that it had reached a deal with its official creditors, a deal in principle for debt relief. That was good that the summit was able to announce that. Ditto on the IMF SDR reallocation process. And this is the International Money Fund's uh, special drawing rights. Exactly. And in a, in a nutshell, during COVID, in order to inject some liquidity and some cash into the system, the IMF 
issued $650 billion in special drawing rights. And, and for those that are not special drawing rights, conoscenti, just accept the fact that it's the IMF's currency, which is convertible into other hard currencies. And when the IMF issued the $650 billion, it goes to countries according to their economic weight in the global economy. And a lot of the poorer countries, therefore, did not get very many SDRs. So the international community and many of the advanced economies in the G20 agreed to rechannel $100 billion of their SDRs to the poorest. But this has been a very slow, very, very opaque process. And Macron used the summit to declare what some are calling a premature victory around the $100 billion reallocation of SDRs to the poorest. If you really add up the numbers, about $20 billion is still held up in the U.S. Congress, and it doesn't quite add up to $100 billion. And even if you look at that $100 billion, it hasn't necessarily, once they've been reallocated, it doesn't mean that they've actually hit the central banks or the finance ministries of the developing countries that need them. So, so it's a little bit of a nice press announcement, but not necessarily something that's entirely done signed, sealed, and delivered. And moreover, I don't think the conference necessarily played a very stimulating role in sealing the deal. This was an effort that was very long underway. And then Ditto they had a whole parallel press release on these, this vision for the MDB system, the multilateral development bank system, and in particular, the World Bank system. But this is a process that has been you know, well underway since for the past six months, so not much new there either. A lot of the language looks extremely familiar. And when you lo really look at, well, okay, well, what does it mean in practice for the poorest countries? What does it mean in practice for the vulnerable countries? What does it mean in practice for climate finance? I would be very hard pressed to really point to something very concrete there. So to summarize your analysis of, of what happened, it seems to me while there were some concrete outcomes like the pause clause, there was no real revolutionary change required to address some of the challenges we spoke about at the outset of this conversation. But it does, as I'm interpreting your remarks, seem to kind of move the needle in the right direction. Is that like a fair characterization? I mean, I think that depends as to whether you're an incrementalist or a revolutionary. And, and and the reason for which I'm making that distinction is because there's an enormous amount of frustration right now in the international system around the lack of follow through and the lack of financial support from the richest countries for the poorest. And the theme and the undercurrent that I think is characterizing most of these international convenings and that was very much present in Paris. I think the president of Kenya in particular, President Ruto, made a very strong speech, is really that the developed world has given itself an enormous amount of exception and provided itself with exceptional financing to whether these exceptional moments that we have found ourselves in, whether it was all of the money we pumped into our own systems during the COVID-19 crisis. You know, some countries up to 10, 15, 20% of GDP. There's no poor country that received that kind of financing. But also on topics around climate finance itself, there's an enormous amount of anger 
in sub-Saharan Africa around topics around their own energy transitions and the fact that it's harder and harder for them to receive, to find external financing and official financing for fossil fuels and for, for gas when they still themselves don't have very much electricity coverage. And the West has really been pushing for very green overseas financing and has really marginalized other sources of energy. But when Russia invaded the Ukraine and Europe found itself last winter facing real energy shortages, all of a sudden a lot of coal-fired plants were coming back online. And those kinds of instances of double standards are really coming to haunt how the international system is perceived by a lot of the poorer countries. And really feeling like there's always a preferential option for the rich countries and the rich countries have very high standards around climate, except when they themselves are in a crisis. And so the reason for which I'm linking this back to the summit is, is not only was this obviously omnipresent in a lot of the, the discussions in the summit, but I think there's a real risk for the West and G7 nations in particular to be doing these large convenings and to be really talking a big game on reinventing the MDB system and talking a big game around climate finance if there's no real money that comes with this. That is the concrete deliverable for countries is, is what more concessional financing and what more grant financing can I be getting from this system so I can continue to finance my development and so I can buttress my economy against the ravages of climate change. And I very much think, you know, a summit like this that moves the needle on a couple of things, you know, it's always good to move the needle rather than move it back. But I think there's a very big risk of the lack of ambition, putting the whole international, the legitimacy of the international financial architecture at risk. And I think that's what we're up against right now. So going forward, are there any coming inflection points in which we will know whether or not wealthier countries, the West, multilateral development banks, will indeed kind of put their money where their mouth is and offer those concessional financing opportunities or grant financing opportunities in meaningful amounts? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of opportunities ahead, and, and these are really decisions for, for governments. The first is, is every time there's talk of reform of the multilateral development banks, there's also questions around capital increases and whether to increase the capital bases of these institutions. And so it's going to be fascinating to follow over the next couple of months, President Ajay Banga, the World Bank has a new president, and what his vision for the institution is. He's just settled in. This is his first month. Paris was his first major international meeting. And the World Bank IMF meetings will be held in Marrakesh this year in, in October. And so I'm going to be watching that very closely. I think that a lot of these conversations around the future of the World Bank will need to be matched around a vision around the financial capacity of the institution. So right there is a real action-forcing event and, and one where there's some opportunity for governments, and in particular, you know, the United States, that really exercises a very strong leadership position by virtue of the fact that it's the largest shareholder at the World Bank. The other thing that I'm following very closely is IDA, which is the International Development Association, which is part of the World Bank and provides very cheap loans and grants to the poorest countries. And they need to be replenished 
which means they need to seek funding from their donors every three years in order to continue to provide resources to the poorest countries. And next year, they're going to be going through a fundraising exercise. And it's very clear that this is part of the World Bank that's in the highest demand. The World Bank has front-loaded most of its financing to these countries already, and they're very close to being tapped out. And so I'm going to be looking at this extremely closely because I really think that it's the poorest countries, the ones that we were talking about earlier, the ones that don't have access to capital markets anymore, the ones that don't have access to private finance, the ones that are probably seeing quite a sharp decline in what they're getting from China. These are the countries that really need official concessional financing and and the relevance of the World Bank in these countries is going to be tremendous over the next decade. And so this is really an opportunity, I think, for for the G7 and, and the broader G20 to really put their money where their mouth is and to come in with a historical replenishment. That's next year, 2024, but I think it's it's important for anyone who cares about these issues to be watching this and, and advocating for this very closely, because this is, I think, a real make or break moment for the international financial system. Well, Clemence, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. My pleasure, Mark. Anytime. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <music>